When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm traveling across both Carolinas, seeking out some of my very favorite sports legends and asking them to tell me the real stories behind their rise to iconic status. Now, for this episode of Sports Legends, we're on the road. We've driven about 110 miles southeast of Charlotte to Sumter, South Carolina. And we're seated there in the family room, inside the home of former New York Yankee great, Bobby Richardson. Bobby Richardson never truly left Sumter or the Carolinas, even when he went on to play baseball in one of the sport's most dazzling cathedrals, Yankee Stadium. Two out in the last of the ninth inning. McCovey hits a sinking liner just one step to Richardson's left. The Yankees win and reign as world champs of 1962. Richardson played for the New York Yankees for his entire career, from 1955 to 1966, competing in seven World Series and winning four of them with teammates like Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and Yogi Berra. Richardson retired from Major League Baseball at age 31 and would later become a longtime college baseball coach, a well-known Christian speaker, and briefly, a political candidate in his home state. He's now 87 years old and he still has a remarkable memory, especially for the time he spent wearing the Yankees' famous pinstripes. Don't forget to pre-order your copy of the Sports Legends book at sportslegendsbook.com. And here's Bobby Richardson next on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Bobby, welcome to the show. Scott, thank you very much. I'm 88th year. I'm in my 88th year now, so it's good looking back every now and then and I just played at the right time with the great ball club, and I, I enjoy looking back because it was a wonderful memory. What were the main differences in Major League Baseball in the 50s and 60s when you were playing versus today's game? If I had to say one word, I'd say it's finance, <laughs> the salaries. <laughs> My first year with the Yankees, I was the minimum salary was $5,000, and that's, of course, what I made. The next year, the minimum salary went up to $7,500. I thought, boy, what am I going to do with all this money? <laughs> and that's unbelievable. The multi-million dollar contracts are unbelievable now. Well, you know, Scotty, I remember when I first signed, uh, actually before I signed, I had an unusual situation where I went out for my high school team. I was 14 years old, and uh, I was playing basketball. I was a week late going out. A big catcher went out with me. His name was Latson Cubbage, and the two of us were looked at for three days, and then the coach came up and said, Latson, you've made the team. Richardson, you, you come back next year. A little disappointed, but uh, my dad said, why don't you try the Legion team? And I did, and I made it. We won the state championship, regional championship, and we're playing in your area in Charlotte, North Carolina against Richmond, Virginia, and the winner of that last game would go to the American Legion World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. 
Before the game, they took us out to see the film prior to the Yankees. The story of Lou Gehrig. Gary Coppa played the part in the film. Babe Ruth played his own part. And I remember after that film thinking, man, that's the greatest organization I've ever seen. Boy, would I like to be a part of that. That was in Charlotte? That was in Charlotte, How about that? North Carolina. But the thing I remember is that when he got to the game to play that last game, there was a Yankee scout there. And he came up to me and he said, uh, I want the coach to hit you a few balls in the hole in shortstop, and he's going to do that before the game, but I'll talk to you after the game. When the game was over, he came up and said, I can promise you that when you graduate from high school, you'll have a chance to sign with the Yankees. He kept his word. They kept in touch. And sure enough, they didn't have a draft in those days. You could sign with anybody, 16 teams, eight in each league, and 12 of those teams gave me the opportunity of signing. If you got over $4,000, you had to go up and spend – Two years on the parent roster, that'd be a waste of time for a young boy. So I signed with the Yankees, two quick years in the minor leagues. I was up at 19, and boy, what wonderful the years that, that I had in New York. So you signed for less than $4,000, you're saying? I did say that. But I was given a three-day trip to New York, and Fred Heath owned the Coca-Cola Balling Company. He had a plane. He said, I'm going to fly you up to work out with the Yankees for three days before you go to the minor leagues. I said, Mr. Heath, I've never been on a plane. Can we go any other way? He said, we'll go by train. We took the train from Florence to New York, checked into the Hotel New Yorker, took a cab out to Yankee Stadium. And as a 17-year-old, I was told to put on a uniform, go out on the field, feel some ground balls, go to the batting cage, take some swings, shower, and then sit down and watch the next three games. As the Yankees were playing the St. Louis Browns, which later became the Baltimore Orioles. This was 1953. I fielded the ground balls. I stood around the cage for a little while, and I wasn't about to step in front of Hank Bauer. The first pitch to right field where Hank Bauer saves the game that he won with his triple. Yogi Berra. And Yogi Berra, belt one, and a chemical blow to Duke Snyder. High over the screen and into Bedford Avenue, and the ball game is even. And Mickey Mantle came up and put his arm around me and said, come on, kids, step in here and take some swings. And it started a friendship that lasted a lifetime. And then Mantle hammers the ball down the right field line and into the stands, only a few feet fair. The Yankees lead one to nothing. And that friendship really was unique, wasn't it? Because the two of you were pretty different personalities. Well, he enjoyed life, let me put it that way, or at least he thought he did. What a wonderful guy. He grew up in, uh, in a lead mine, and his father worked in a lead mine, and baseball was so good, and his dad was the encouragement that kept him in baseball. He had a little hard time and thought about quitting, going back, and his dad said, you don't want to work in the lead mine. You get back up and give it your best, and he became the icon of baseball. But I did have a great experience with him, uh, even uh, as a player, and then later in life, uh, uh, he and I had did a lot of things. He and I had a little place together in Boone, North Carolina, at Grandfather Mountain. I remember one year we were both grand marshals of the ski festival. He didn't know how to ski, and I didn't know how to ski, and they filmed it on a lift like we knew what we were doing. But he came down to Sumter. He gave a batting exhibition. This was in, 19, uh, let's see, 1969. He had just retired, and he wouldn't do that for anybody else. And we raised enough money at a banquet and that exhibition to build a YMCA in Sumter. He came to the University of South Carolina and did a— TV show on young boys, eight years old. He was giving them instruction. Whitey Ford's son played for me, too, and he was talking to the pitchers. And so for just a moment, I'd like for you to work with Eddie Ford and John Gambrell on the bunt. 
I'd like for you to take the bat, if you would, and maybe lay a couple bunts down, and they could watch you. Then we'll watch them try it and see how they do. Well, first, uh, Bobby, let me show you. I was just talking to him about uh, drag bunting. This is what we call a drag bunt. You try to drag the ball between the pitcher and the first baseman and make the second baseman feel it. And I remember we caught up with one of those eight-year-old boys 40 years later. This was not too long ago. He was 48 years, 48 years old. And we asked, what was it like having the icon of baseball give you instruction? He said, I just remember one thing. We asked Mr. Mantle if he'd take one swing. He hit the ball out of the park, over the football field, into the parking lot, and said, you jumped up and said, stop. We can't do that. My car is parked over there. <laughs> Those are great memories. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's go back to Sumter for a minute, Bobby. Your dad was in the tombstone business, is that right? Yes, Richardson Marble and Granite Works, and his folks before that also were in the tombstone business. And um, he worked hard, he loved baseball, didn't have a chance to play because he had to work, but uh, he made sure that I had a chance to play baseball. And I remember that as an eight-year-old, I'd go down on Saturdays, that was the one day out of school and so forth, and they'd always be putting a monument somewhere in some of the cemeteries close by. And the one deal I had was I'd pick up the sign the funeral home left there signifying who was the grave site for, and I'd take that sign and turn it back in the funeral home, which was right next door to my dad's business, and they'd give me $5, and I could make $5 That's a lot of money. That's yeah. a lot of money. I agree. Yes. Yeah, $5. That's a, and so my that first year with the Yankees, I only made $5,000. <laughs> 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 That's right. They weren't on the tombstone uh, uh, rages, were they? No. Um, what was the biggest salary you ever made for the Yankees? I got up to 50000 50000 uh, And this sold, was in 1967? My last year. Seven. Yeah. It's really unusual just to worry about it, and you can uh, you can understand a little bit. Tony Kubek and I were both retired at 29. We had already played where the Yankees had won nine out of ten years as far as the World Series is concerned. He was a great influence on all the players he played with or against. Uh, uh, he rarely missed a game. Uh, he was not tall as far as stature, and yet he had some 200-hit seasons. Uh, uh, his name's in the record book in the 60 World Series along with names like Mantle and DiMaggio and Ruth, and even ahead of them in some slugging categories in that one ball game. Uh, but I think character first, uh, uh, very quiet, unassuming, uh, a leader. Uh, uh, some say he was part of uh, one of the best entries ever assembled. I'll leave the historians to, to say that. We both had families growing up, and we both wanted to spend more time with our family. Sports Illustrated found out about it. They sent a photographer over. He took a picture, and we would go beyond the cover of Sports Illustrated, the pictures in my office right over there. And, and then what happened? The Yankees um, moved Ralph Houck up to general manager, from manager, and he signed Bobby Mercer. And he came over and he said, I know you two both want to retire, but I've just signed Bobby Mercer. I want one of you, it doesn't matter which one, to play one more year and break Bobby Mercer in. I said, I really want to retire. And Tony said, okay, I'll do it. One week later, he was called in the reserves. and He had to spend a year in the National Guard reserves. And so Ralph called me and said, Tony can't play. Will you play one more year? And I said, I'll be glad to. He handed me a blank contract and said, just fill it in, anything you want. And I said, well, I didn't have too good a year last year. How about the same thing as last year? He said, if that suits you, that'll be fine. 
But when he came in, gave me the contract back, it was for that amount, but it was a five-year contract. And for five years, they were going to pay me a certain amount of money for the next five years that would make me making just a little bit more than Mickey Mantle's $100,000 salary. And so <laughs> I don't usually say that, but uh, the Yankees were so good to me. Bob, he was an excellent player. He could hit and run. Uh, uh, he couldn't throw a fastball by him. He could steal a base, even though we weren't playing in a base-stealing era. And uh, they compare him to Mazeroski, and I think very favorably. Uh, some say Mazeroski might be the quickest on the double play ever. That's always debatable. I could say the same thing about my partner, Bobby Richardson, because he was as quick as they came. So I'm sure a lot of people now ask you, why did you retire? You're, I believe, 87 years old now. As you say, going to be 88 later this year. You're 31 that day you're speaking of. A lot of ball players play I longer. My first old timers game. I was still thirty one. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, right. So that's that's. Uh, so why thirty one? Why not? You know, wait, go well, until late thirties or something. I could have played five more years, six yeah. more years. You know, I, I was in good shape. I made the all star team the last six years, and so. Um, but I just felt like that I'd been there and we had done so well, and uh, that I wanted to spend more time with my family. I had two boys that were, I missed out on all the years they were playing knee pants league, little league and so forth like that. I had two girls. And at that time, my fifth, my third son had not been born. He was born after I retired and came back home to Sumter. But it's probably the best decision I ever made. I did go out. And then what happened, it was unique. Um, uh, Paul Dietzel came over and asked if I'd like to be the baseball coach at South Carolina. I turned him down, turned him down the second time. But fortunately for me, he came the third time. He said, I won't bother you anymore, but I'd really like for you to coach baseball at the University of South Carolina. I said, I'm ready to try it. Let me get a relief from the Yankees. And I went to the Yankees to get the release, and uh, Lee McPhail was the general manager then. He said, now, wait a minute. If you want to, you can come back and be a major league coach. You can be our broadcaster, or you can be our AAA manager. And I said, no, the travel the separation is the reason I'm getting out. It won't be that way coaching on the college level. And so he said, well, we'll just pay you off then. But when you get settled, give us a call. and We'll bring the Yankees down to play your ball club. Four years later, we lost out to Miami by one run at the University of South Carolina. And I called Lee McPhail and I said, I'm ready for you to come down. And he hesitated. He said, well, we got a little problem. I thought that was a no. <laughs> he said, we're traveling north from spring training with the New York Mets. I thought that was the reason for the no. And then he said, will it be all right if the Yankees and Mets come down and play your ball club? I said, amen. <laughs> <laughs> we played three against the Yankees, three against the Mets. They played each other under the lights, just put our team on the map, and just uh, the fans stayed with us. And next year, we finished second in the nation in the College World Series. Our record was 51-6, and six, losing to Texas in the final game of the College World Series. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. You had a lot of uh, World Series memories. Uh, what, what's your favorite? One was the third game of the 60 World Series. I was supposed to be bunting. It wasn't a good call for a manager. Casey Stengel had me batting down at the bottom of the line of the pitch was up next. Bases were loaded. We were ahead one nothing in the first inning. Uh, Vinegar Bazil was pitching. It was one out, and he gave me the bunt. I thought he was going to pinch hit for me because occasionally he pinch hit. But anyway... I fouled it off twice on the bunt that he'd given me. 
And then Frank Versetti hollered out, hit the ball to right field, try to stay out of the double play. And I was trying to hit a ground ball to right right field when Clem Levine threw the fastball in here. And I hit it good. And when I rounded first base, it looked like the left feet had caught the ball. He was looking down at his glove. Later on, I saw the umpire doing that. I knew it was a grand slam. And the thing I remember most is my teammates, the three that were on base, were there to congratulate me. And I realized, man, I just hit a grand slam home run. And I walked in the dugout, and Stingle's response was, good bunt. (laughs) (laughs) Good bunt. Now, he was uh, quirky, right? Casey Stingle, he would platoon players. Like you say, he sometimes would pinch hit uh, guys in the first or second inning. And, and I know sometimes he played you and sometimes he didn't. So what was your relationship with him like? Well, I'm not sure he ever, ever learned my name. Really? The first time I remember is that the, we were traveling north from spring training. And the very first year I was traveling north with the team, we played an exhibition game in Savannah, Georgia. All the Sumter people, my father, my cousins, my uncles, all came down there. And I didn't start the game and I didn't get in the game. And finally, one of my teammates went up to him and said, Richardson's relatives are all here, and he hadn't been in the game. He said, oh, 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 get a get, Richardson, Richardson, get a, get a bat. Pinch hit for whoever the hitter was up there. And Man, I hit a triple. I couldn't believe it. I hit a triple. I was stepping up on the bag looking to see if my dad was looking. The third baseman said, you're from South Carolina, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm from something. He said, my name is Puddinhead Jones. I'm from Bennettville. He said, move your foot and let me get the dirt off that bag. I moved my foot, and you know what the answer is. Hidden ball trick. He had the ball from the triple, tagged me out. But the I was scrambling to get back in when I saw him doing it. And the umpire was from South Carolina. He said, I can't believe you do that to a South Carolinian. Safe. I will not call him out. Oh, really? Yeah. But I learned a lesson. It never happened again. That's great. Now, didn't isn't there a story about Stingle and how you were on the precipice of hitting 300 in the final game of the season one year? The only year we didn't win, we won in 55, 6, 7, 8, 61, 2, 3, 4, but 59, the Yankees didn't have a single 300 hitter. And the White Sox won that year. And on the last day of the season. Pitcher Jerry Staley is sent to the mound by Lopez. The Sox first pennant in 40 years hangs in the balance. One pitch ends the suspense. Sharp fielding and the Sox turn it into a double play. Stingle came up to me and he said, you're hitting 299. If you can get a hit first time up tomorrow, we'll take you out of the lineup and the Yankees will have at least one 300 hitter. Well, word sort of got around. Billy O'Dell was pitching. He's from Newberry. He and I quail hunt together and he sent word over, I'll be throwing it right in there for you tomorrow. Brooks Robinson was playing third base. He sent word over, I'll be playing real deep if you want to bunt. (laughs) And then the catcher was Joe Ginsburg. When I got up there, he said, I'm going to tell you what's coming now. And then the first base umpire had told me, he said, it, just make it close at first base. I had a line drive to right field, and my best friend Alvin Pearson made a diving catch. He didn't get in on it. But the rest of the story is I got two hits next two times up. He didn't even have to take me out. I hit 300. Okay, that was 59. Um, and you have... Always come back to Sumter, no matter what, right? The house we're sitting in, I believe you said is you, you built it in while you were still playing, right? When was we that? Had, right after the Pittsburgh World Series, when we lost, when Bill Mazeroski at the home run. 1960. Mm-hmm. We came home and <clears throat> we we bought this lot. There was just one home in this development. This was the old airport, so there are no homes around, dirt roads all around. I thought I'd be out in the country. I could let my bird dogs out and shoot quail in the backyard. 
it's since grown up all around us and now you don't. But I do have a big backyard and I brought some bases home from Yankee Stadium. My kids have enjoyed games in the backyard. And in fact, we had so many children come into our house that folks would stop by and want to know if they could enroll their kids in kindergarten or whatever we had going here at this home. It's been a wonderful home. I've kept it all these years. Even when I was coaching somewhere else, I would keep this home. You and your wife, uh, Betsy, have been married. 66 years. That's wow. a long time. 66 years. She seems amazing grace when somebody says something about that. And truly it is. <laughs> and, and how is she doing these days? My wife is doing well. She is on dialysis. It's peritoneal. She had kidney failure. And peritoneal is just a solution they put into your stomach. You do it seven days a week. You have a machine that does most of the work, and it's at nighttime. It takes about eight hours. But you can do anything you want. You can, with that machine, travel a little bit. We go to the beach occasionally when our grandchildren are down there, and she's doing wonderfully well. And she's been on it for two and a half years now. She's five years younger than I am, but she's 82, will be soon 83, but she's doing fine health-wise. And you guys uh, have a, an enormous number of grandchildren and greats, right? How many do you have of these? Well, it's hard to believe we've been married this long, but uh, we have 18 grandchildren, and we have 18 great-grandchildren. Wow. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Tell me a little bit about the Milkshake Twins. Well, I like it, but I'm not sure Tony likes that name as much as I do. But it all started when we were visiting the Billy Graham Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Tony and I were both invited to come and go through the facilities there. That was before they moved to the Charlotte area in North Carolina. And while we were there, we picked up a little chorus book. Well, Tony decided he wanted to sing some of those hymns. He had a Catholic background and he wasn't aware of them, but he said, I'd like to sing some of those. He said, let's call the batting practice pitcher. He always has a harmonica with him and he'll play and we'll sing. Well, we did that that night uh, for about three hours. The next morning went down for breakfast and some of our teammates were sitting there and you could tell they hadn't slept all night long and we asked him what was the matter. And they said, well, there was some drunks up where we were singing all night long. <laughs> Well, Tony got a kick out of that. We went into Chicago. We really needed to win. Yogi Berra was our manager. It was 1964, and we were about eight games behind at that time late in the season. And so he went down to Marshall Fields, and he bought four harmonicas. Gave me one. He took one. Uh, he gave one to Tommy Trish, and then he gave one to Phil Lentz. Well, we lost four games in a row in Chicago, and we got on that bus going out toward O'Hara Airport. You could have heard a pin drop. And Phil Lynch, who hadn't played an inning of any of those games, chose this turn to learn how to obey his harmonica. He was playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. Well, Yogi heard it, but he didn't say anything. When he played it again, Yogi jumped up and said, put that thing in your pocket. He didn't use those words, <laughs> but some something like yeah, that. Right. He didn't hear him. And Phil said to his, those around him, he said, what did you say? I couldn't hear him. And Mantle was sitting over nearby. He said he couldn't hear you. Played again, louder. Well, he did, and Yogi jumped up, grabbed the harmonica, threw it, and hit Puppetoni, called for the trainer. Seven reporters traveling with us, they all agreed he wouldn't print it. It would look like dissension on the ball club. But it was headlines in all the newspapers, and Phil Lentz um, was offered a $5,000 contract by a harmonica company. So much publicity came out of it. 
Yogi fined him $200. They finally, as we won the season that year and got into the pennant, they returned his $200 they fined him. He's made a fortune after that. He passed away not too long ago, but his guard had a musical instrument, harmonica. Oh, that's great. To jump around a little bit, but you told me that you have performed or, or spoken at 12 of your former Yankees funerals. Is that right? You know, right? I had a wonderful rapport with my teammates. I've had a dozen of my teammates' funerals over the years. Everything's different. Ralph Houck's son, Bobby, invited me to come. He was my coach, my manager, my general manager. Just a wonderful Green Beret guy in the background. Just a wonderful guy. Ina Slaughter's daughter was born on the same day as my son in the same hospital. She asked me to have her dad's funeral. And I was speaking at Roger Maris's funeral. His wife had asked me to represent the Yankees and have the eulogy there. And Mickey Mantle sat down by me after the game and said, I want you to have my funeral. Kept in touch. And sure enough, I did uh, have his funeral years later. But uh, everyone had a just different reason. Bob Turley's son asked me to have his funeral. Cleet Boy's granddaughter asked me to have her funeral. And so the Lord just uh, used uh, uh, just a great companionship. It really is a blessing. And But I think what some people don't understand maybe is that you're not a, a pastor. I'm not a pastor. I have two sons that are pastors and yeah. two grandsons that are pastors. Really? They've all finished seminary and uh, undergraduate as well, And but I'm not a pastor. You um, famously caught a line drive to end a World Series. Tell us about that one. That was the 1962 World Series, and Billy O'Dell, who's from Newberry, South Carolina, was pitching for his 20th win. He'd won 19 games for the San Francisco Giants. Mickey lines the ball to right field for a base hit. Bobby Richardson, breaking toward third, held up, fearing the ball might be caught, and thus is unable to score, and the bases are loaded. And it was a it was a tough series. Willie McCovey was their key hitter on the ball club, and Ralph Terry was our pitcher. He was pitching in that seventh game, and going down to the seventh game, it was all even. And the Yankees got one run off Billy O'Dell, so we're leading one to nothing going into the ninth inning of that last game in the World Series. Here's the pitch to Willie. Here's a liner straight to Richardson. The ball game is over, and the World Series is over. And uh, the first guy up was Matty Alou. Left-hand hitter could run like a deer, and I knew he was going to bunt. I'm smart enough to kind of sense the situation, and I actually moved in a little bit, and I wanted to be ready to get that bunt. And sure enough, he bunted, and I came in. But the pitch and first baseman came together, and I was not able to feel the bunt. It was just a perfect bunt, really. So he was on first base, and then we got two quick outs, and Willie Mays came up, and Willie's a great competitor, and he hit a line drive to right field. It had been raining, raining, raining. It was muddy out in the outfield. Mays hammers the ball down the right field line. Maris, with expert feeling, rushes over, cuts off the ball, keeps it from bounding on toward the fence. He gets his throw away quickly. Straight into the hands of the cutoff man, Bobby Richardson. Bobby whirls and fires the ball to the plate just as Manny Alou is rounding third to head for home. The relay stops him. He has to go back to third while Mays continues to second with a double. 
Roger made a wonderful catch to cut it off and to hold it to a double. And he made the relay to me, and I made the relay to home, and the third base coach held Matty Lou on third base. And so they were runners on second and third. And I remember that Ralph Houck came out to talk to our pitcher, Ralph Terry, to decide whether you wanted to walk him and uh, and pitched uh, not to Willie McCovey, but to the next hitter, a right-hand hitter, who was an outstanding hitter as well, or if he wanted to to pitch to Willie McCovey. While he was doing that, I walked over to second base. Kubek and I roomed together, and Willie Mays was standing on second base. And Kubek said to me, he said, um, sure hope Willie McCovey doesn't hit the ball to you. And I said, why? He said, well, you've already made one error in this series. I'd hate to see you blow it now. Well, that's what I was thinking about when I went back to my position. And I got in position, and just as he was about to deliver the pitch, the umpire behind me said, hey, Rich, could you get my could you give me your cap from my cousin? And I was still thinking about that, and McCovey hit the ball. And he, he told me later it was the hardest ball he ever hit. And uh, I caught it, and so the Yankees won. And I went running up, gave the hat to the umpire, and went running up and gave the ball to Ralph Terry. And, uh, <laughs> the umpire asked for your hat in the middle of right, a right, game Right, right, when seven. I was set. Yes, he did. It was a National League umpire. It wasn't even American oh League. But gosh. one more thing, though. Yeah. 45 years went by. 45 years later, after 62, they built a new stadium in San Francisco. And they asked Willie McCovey and I to come out and throw out the first ball. They were having a banquet that night before. And I remember going out, and when I saw him for the first time in 45 years, his response to me was, I bet your hand's still hurting. I said, you hit it hard. (laughs) We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. You uh, were slick fielding. I, there's a famous Casey Stingle quote about you about, look at him, he doesn't drink, he doesn't chew, he doesn't stay out late, and he still can't hit 250. That uh, I know you hit better than 250, um, but were you known more than your for fielding? You know, it's a funny thing, but I hit great in the minor leagues. In the rookie league, I hit 412. I was second in the league in Denver and AAA. And I was uh, second in the league in, in Binghamton, New York. When I got to New York, New York pitching is good. I mean, Major League Baseball is tough. But uh, I was the type hitter that could uh, get on base. I led the American League in hits one year, 209. I think I led the Yankees in hits four out of the 10 years, probably, mm. for the most hits. I could get it. My idea was to get on base. I, I didn't walk much. They said, well, why didn't you get many walks? Well, they wouldn't walk you if you were a light hitter and you had hitting behind you Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, Elston Howard, Yogi Berra, who all are great hitters. Yogi Berra played on a record 10 World Series champion teams, reached 18 All-Star games in 18 seasons in pinstripes, and won three American League MVP awards. To answer your question, Stingle amended that. Nobody printed it in the newspaper, but he said, best 260 hitter I ever had. (laughs) I'm not sure he ever learned my name. He just called me kid. He said, kid, come up here and do this and do that. Kid, just that one time when he was at the Savannah, right? (laughs) Somebody had to to tell him then. Tell me about your uh, brief foray into uh, political candidacy in the 70s in South Carolina. Well, I I have a son that moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was involved in a ministry. Rich DeVos was chairman of the board, and Gerald Ford was a good friend of his. 
And my best friend who headed my ministry, this my son was working for, because of our friendship, Gerald Ford got to know me and he asked me if I would run for Congress. They had had a Democratic um, congressman down here in this area for a long time and they felt like they would like a change and they asked me to run as a Republican in South Carolina for the congressional seat in the district that I live in. And they actually didn't have representation in seven of the 10 counties, but uh, I, I, I decided to run. I was ready to get out of baseball and to go into uh, what I thought I would enjoy, but I didn't enjoy it. Uh, I, I found the most difficult thing to walk in a restaurant and say, would you vote for me? That was the most difficult thing, far harder than anything I ever did in baseball. And sure enough, the election, my wife said I won because I didn't have to go to Washington. I lost by a small amount, and I think she's right, and, uh, <laughs> and I agree. But uh, the only other thing I ever did when Reagan ran for president, we had a, a senator, Strom Thurmond, and our governor, Jim Edwards, were both for John Connolly, who was running in the Republican primary against Ronald Reagan. And General Mark Clark and I headed up South Carolina for Ronald Reagan. And Betsy and I traveled around the state. We started in Charlotte. He flew in there, and we spoke in Lancaster and Kershaw and Sumter and the Florence Airport, just all over the state. What a wonderful man he was. He loved baseball. He actually broadcast some games for the Chicago Cubs, and we just had a wonderful time. Betsy and I still have a picture of he and I together. And, and um, when, when, when he won, and he did win, and then won big. Now let's watch his pitch. Damon Berryhill. How about the thrill for that 24-year-old rookie catcher? Little did he dream all would happen to him this rookie year that had. And here catching he did. regularly, catching a ball thrown by the president and getting his autograph. It usually works the other way around. The person who throws out the first game usually gets the catcher's autograph. In this case. The president is autographing one or two for Damon Berryhill, and I'm sure for Mary Ellen Cobb. Didn't Joe DiMaggio at one point come into Sumter well, as well? Now, Joe DiMaggio actually came back to upgrade his pension, and he was our hitting coach for two years. And one of the years I hit over 300, Joe DiMaggio meant a lot to me. Mm. He loved Kubek and I. He trusted us, and he was a loner. He didn't have a lot of friends. Now or never for the Bombers. Joe DiMaggio leads off in the Yanks. But Kubek and I was friends. He'd call us up in later years and he'd say, hey, Rich, I'm going to play in the old timers game in Los Angeles. Uh, you go be there? And I said, yeah. He said, let's have dinner together. Crack a jack barrel in Washington. Betsy and I and my younger son, Richie, who was seven years old, he asked us to go out and have lunch with him. And we hadn't been there two minutes when my young son, Mr. DiMaggio, tell me about Marilyn Monroe. And I kicked him under the table. And he said, no, no. He said, I really cared for her. And he said, that's all right. And, and I remember he telling Rich, he said, I put flowers after she died. He said, I put flowers on her grave every day. I have flowers sitting out there. And he really did love her at that time. When he died, uh, he did not have a funeral. He came down when I ran for Congress. Well, on their own, Joe DiMaggio called me. And Mantle called me, and both of them said the same thing. They said, we're here running for Congress, don't know which ticket. We want you to know we'll both come down at our own expense and do anything you want. And Joe DiMaggio came to Sumter. We had a barbecue at uh, a big place out here, 
and 3,000 people came out and he signed autographs. My next door neighbor has five balls. He was over, we had dinner over there with him. Five balls signed by Joe DiMaggio. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Speaking of famous men who loved baseball, Ronald Reagan, you mentioned, isn't that true also about uh, your friend Billy Graham? Billy Graham wanted to be a professional baseball player. He loved baseball with all his heart. The Lord had different plans for him, and he, of course, became one of the all-time evangelists in the country. And it's true that he and I were friends. And I was with him on five different occasions giving my testimony. The first one was in uh, Madison Square Garden. He had a crusade in New York, and uh, I was there and gave about a three-minute testimony just telling what the Lord meant to me. And, of course, he had the message, George Beverly Shea would sing. And then the second time was at the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. There were 50,000 people there, and President Lyndon Johnson was there in attendance. That's a little more difficult. We were in the middle of the field. Everybody else was in the stands. And so not seeing people there so far off, a little more difficult. But uh, I was there, Honolulu, Hawaii, um, on national television, and then twice in Japan. Tell me a little bit about when Mantle and Maris uh, had their famous home run duel in 1961. Five thousand dollars, somebody. He got his pitch. Look, five thousand dollars. And here is uh, the fellow with 61. You're seeing a lot today. 61 was a special year. I remember two things. Number one, it was special. And that team was compared with the 1927 Yankees. Whitey Ford had a wonderful year. He won 25 ball games. Lost just uh, a very, very few ball games. One of Selkirk's prized players of recent years was little Eddie Ford, brilliant southpaw, now with the Bombers. Binghamton fans will never forget Eddie's remarkable 1949 season when he led the league in earned run averages and in strikeouts. But Maris and Mantle were having the home run championship. Who was going to be the one to break Babe Ruth's record of 60? And they were together, about 54 apiece. And Mantle had a, a thing on his side, and Mel Allen had recommended a doctor to look at it. And he got a shot, but somehow an infection set in, and he couldn't play the last three weeks of the season. So we were all pulling from Mantle, being a Yankee, to be the one to break Babe Ruth's home record record. And why was that? Because he had the background. Roger was traded in, and um, it's good he was hitting the home runs. In fact, I can't believe this, but there were people booing Mickey Mantle a little bit if you'd have a strikeout three times or something like that. And when Roger came on board, no more booing for Mickey. They started booing Roger. Uh, Yankee fans are... I, I was in the middle of the infield, and yeah. I didn't get too many boos. I was just kind of out of contact to hear them, so yeah. it seems like. Yeah. But anyway, our allegiance switched it over to Roger. But Mantle knew how to take. He had been up before, and Abe would always ask the question, now you're going to break Babe Ruth's home record. Roger started losing his hair and just uh, just had no peace at all in baseball. The only time he was satisfied was actually playing the game itself. Well, anyway, it came down to the last, and Roger on, wanted to sit out. He didn't care about breaking the record. He really didn't. He's not that type of person. He's the most humble guy I think I've ever met. And uh, Ralph talked him into playing that last game. He had a home run. He broke the record. 
And I remember when he came into the clubhouse, he didn't acknowledge the fans at all. We pushed him out of the dugout and made him go back up, and he just tipped his cat. Now, Reggie Jackson, the later years, hit three home runs, and he would go out and do one, two, three. I mean, right. different personalities. <laughs> yes, very different. Yes. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Bobby. It's just uh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing us into your home and being able to speak with you and meeting your lovely wife as well. And uh, I wonder if you would just like to close us uh, with some closing words and maybe what you tell people when you go and speak and, and, you know, kind of the importance in in your life of various things. So when I speak, I close when these funerals, each one of them just about, I use these words and I'd like to close with it today. It was given to me by a Canadian who, when my son was five years old, just starting to read, Robbie said, Daddy, I'd thrown my mail for the day at Yankee Stadium up on the dashboard of the car, and he'd pick one letter out, and he's reading it. He's written these words, and he said, you can use it on any occasion you have to. His name was Walt Hunter. It says, your name may not appear down here in this world's Hall of Fame. In fact, you may be so unknown that no one knows your name. The trophies, the honors, the flashbulbs here may pass you by, neon lights are blue. But if you know and love the Lord, then I have news for you. This Hall of Fame is only good as long as time shall be. But keep in mind God's Hall of Fame is for eternity. This crowd on earth, they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall, and that's how long you last. But in God's Hall of Fame, by just believing in His Son inscribed, you'll find your name. I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name, however small, that's written down beyond the stars in that celestial hall. For every famous name on earth, our glory that they share, I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name up there. And I guess that really does say it all. Wow. Well, we can't possibly improve on that. That is Bobby Richardson. I'm Scott Fowler. And this has been Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank you, Scott. And Jeff, thank you, too. Thanks so much for listening and supporting local journalism. Find more on these interviews, including special video features, at charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends. And pre-order the Sports Legends of the Carolinas book at sportslegendsbook.com. And if you like what we're doing out here, please consider a digital subscription to the Charlotte Observer. Sports Legends of the Carolinas is a product of the Charlotte Observer. It's hosted by me, Scott Fowler and produced by Lume Alisali and Jeff Siner. The executive producer of the Sports Legends franchise is Kata Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and our executive editor is Raina Cash. The McClatchy Audio's interns are Zoe Williams and Christina Silvestri. See you next time.